and Radio Derb is on the air. Greetings, listeners, from your perseveringly genial host, John Derbyshire, this last weekend of 2023. I have been somewhat incapacitated for most of this month, and particularly this past couple of weeks. In particular, I haven't been able to give Radio Derb the concentrated attention it requires. In lieu thereof, this week's podcast has an unusual structure. In place of farm fresh material, I am going to dig into the archives and give you segments from past end of year radio derbs. These are all short segments, most of them from the closing miscellany. That will keep this podcast's length down to something manageable. It will also keep it a bit lighter than usual, as it's in the closing miscellany that I put less serious items. So, some year-end radio derbs, 2004 to 2022. Off we go. 2004 was, of course, an election year, and at year-end the result was in. I gloated. Everybody knows the story of Frosty the Snowman, so why don't you just sing along with me to this slightly adapted version, Frosty the Candidate. Frosty the Candidate was a chilly kind of soul, with his lantern jaw and his pompadour and his icy self-control. Frosty the candidate was a decorated vet, with a senate seat where he couldn't be beat, he just looked like a safe bet. There must have been some magic in the way that he campaigned, for when it came convention time, nomination he'd attained. Oh, Frosty, the candidate, came on strong in the debates, and out on the trail seemed he couldn't fail to swing some crucial states. But then his wartime comrades, feeling cheated and betrayed, showed us how he'd lied, slandered men who died. In that long-ago decade, oh, Frosty, the candidate, started slipping in the polls. By election night he'd slipped out of sight with his story full of holes. Thumpity, thump, thump, thumpity, thump, thump, look at Frosty go. Thumpity, thump, thump, thumpity, thump, thump, goodbye, gigolo. December 2005, there was a proposal in the air to build a proper wall along our southern border. I passed comment. President Vicente Fox of Mexico has complained about the proposal to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. Said Fox, quote, by building these walls, the United States is forcing us to deal with the problems of our failed economy. Unable any longer to export our poorest citizens to the U.S., we in Mexico, Mexico's ruling classes 
we'll have to take our thumbs off Mexico's windpipe and free our people to live productive lives under a fair rule of law and economic liberty. We shall also lose the billions of dollars in remittances sent back every year by Mexicans working illegally in the U.S. One of the major financial props holding up our rotten and unjust social system. This is a gross assault on the human rights of corrupt oligarchs everywhere. End quote. Well, no, he didn't really say that. I made it up. If he had said that, he would have been speaking the truth. And that really would be news. In 2006, ICE was still raiding employers who used illegal alien labour. I wondered if perhaps we could enlist trial lawyers to help. The premises of the meatpacking firm Swift & Co. got raided in six states last week because the firm is hiring illegal aliens. Good. Now, ex-employees of Swift & Co. are suing the firm for conspiring to depress wages by hiring those aliens. Double good. Since we can't get rid of the trial lawyers, let's enlist them in the fight against illegal labour. Meatpacking is not work that Americans won't do. We used to do it at decent wages. These firms hiring in illegals are insulting American citizens and legal residents. I hope Swift & Co. get taken to the cleaners in this civil suit with some hefty punitive damages. And I hope we see more of these lawsuits by people who've lost their jobs to illegals. This is the key to the illegal immigration problem. No jobs, no problem. Two thousand and seven Congressional Treason on the Border Fence. I pass my son's room and I see that he's on the computer texting with his friends. Have you finished your homework, son? I ask. No, he says. I'm just taking a break. All right, I say. Five minutes. Twenty minutes later, I go past again, and he's texting again. Or perhaps still. You know the feeling. Well, if you've raised kids, you know the feeling. The United States Congress is kind of like that. The only sure way to get them doing what they ought to be doing is to be tirelessly vigilant and keep the pressure on. Case in point, the border fence. Last year's Secure Fence Act specified, quote, two layers of reinforced fencing. It also specified five stretches of the border, totaling over 700 miles, where the fence should be built. Well, Congress has just passed a monster spending bill, over half a trillion dollars, containing 9,000 earmarks. And in there, among the countless other clauses of this humongous bill, are a couple that a. remove the requirement for two layers of fence, and b leave the locations of the fence segments to the discretion of border enforcement. The elites in this country are 
absolutely unshakably determined that illegal immigration shall not be controlled, let alone stopped. It is their top priority, the most important thing in the world to them. The business lobbies, the gated community crowd, the educrats, the mainline churches, the unions, the tort lawyers, the liberal bleeding hearts, they love Im illegal immigration more than they love their lives. If it's up to them, that fence will never be built. Fortunately, it's not just up to them. As the defeat of this year's amnesty bill proved, we have voices too. The trouble is, we have to keep using them. If we relax for a minute, they slip some atrocity like this through Congress. Keep shouting. Keep calling. Don't let up. At the end of 2008, the news was of riots in Sweden by unruly youths. Over in the city of Malmö, Sweden, I think that's probably Malmö, Malmö, Sweden, um, <clears throat> the youth of the city celebrated Christmas in their own interesting way by staging riots. If you go to YouTube and enter Malmo Riots, or Malmö Riots, you will get a good picture. The police were out in convoys of heavily armed vehicles, facing barrages of rocks and Molotov cocktails. The youths set fire to a school, and there was widespread looting. Gosh, those Swedish youths are really unruly, aren't they? Perhaps they'd eaten too many meatballs or watched too many old Liv Ullmann movies. At any rate, you can be sure that these riots are nothing whatever to do with the fact that Sweden has some of the world's loosest laws on immigration and asylum, or that Malmö's population is one quarter Muslim immigrants from the Middle East, or that 90% of these Muslim immigrants are unemployed. The riots have nothing to do with any of that, nothing at all, and it would be a gross violation of multicultural protocols to suggest otherwise. These were just youths, you understand, just Swedish youths. It was probably just Christmas high spirits. Or perhaps, who knows, perhaps they were celebrating diversity. At the end of 2009, I told you, not for the first time, the secret to success in life. Here I go again. Are you ready? Here it comes. Get a government job. If you can't get a job with the federal government, snoozing over an x-ray machine at some airport or stamping visas into terrorist passports while simultaneously playing Call of Duty on your iPhone, try your state government. In my own state of New York last year, quote from the December 28th New York Post, quote, a six-figure tsunami swept the state payroll last year, with the number of state workers who earn more than $100,000 surging 28%, end quote. 
Do I need to remind you that New York State is flat broke, with huge budget crises looming up in the near future? I'm sure I don't. Sir, what's their solution? Why, to raise the salaries of state employees. Further quote, The six-figure surge will likely continue. Union employees got a 3% hike this year. They're slated to get another 4% hike next year, when the state faces a deficit of $9 billion. One more time, citizens. Get a government job. At the end of 2010, Barack Obama revealed to us his biggest disappointment. He couldn't reward scofflaws as much as he wanted to. Uh, This is from last week, but it came in too late to be garnered by my tireless research staff. President Obama said at a press conference on December 22nd that the biggest disappointment of the year for him was Congress's failure to pass the DREAM Act, which would have given permanent resident status to some unknown number of illegal aliens, probably around two million. So, unemployment is stuck at 10%. Every level of government, from municipal to federal, is hemorrhaging money. T-bonds are being used to wrap fish in the street markets of Peking. The war in Afghanistan enters its tenth year of going nowhere at all. A colossal sinkhole has opened up in the Eurozone. Putin and Ahmadinejad and Kim Jong-il are emailing each other Obama jokes. And Obama's party lost control of Congress in the midterm elections. And the president's biggest disappointment was not being able to further reward flagrant scofflaws. I say further because the scofflaws in question have already got a free education at US taxpayers' expense. Here's my biggest disappointment, Mr. President, that you continue to violate your oath of office by deliberately failing faithfully to execute the people's laws. Twenty eleven a skirmish in the war on Christmas. I'm not sure which side of the war on Christmas this story belongs to. Greg Martin, owner of a diner in southwest England, put a sign in front of his store. The sign showed a photograph of himself with Santa in an arm lock. He's holding a fry cook's spatula to Santa's throat. Chalked above him on the menu board is the message, Eat here, or the old bastard gets it. Obviously inspired by that famous National Lampoon cover by our magazine, Or We Shoot This Dog. Well, Mr. Martin's poster got the coppers out of the station house all right. They piled into a patrol car and headed at high speed for Mr. Martin's establishment. Driving straight past a 90-year-old widow being mugged for her pocketbook. Once arrived, they issued Mr. Martin a stern warning that he had committed a Section 5 offence under the Public Order Act 1986, which forbids Britons to, quote, 
display any writing, sign or other visible representation which is threatening, abusive or insulting within the sight of a person likely to be caused harassment, alarm or distress, end quote. All right, I'll allow that Mr. Martin's display may have fallen short in the spirit of the season department, but I can't see why anyone other than Mrs. Claus should have suffered harassment, alarm or distress on viewing it. I guess you can never be too careful, though. Just a single instance of hurt feelings anywhere by anyone could bring the entire structure of civilization crashing to the ground. I mean, it's not as if the Western world were populated by adults with mature powers of reason and judgment and a sense of humour. At the end of 2012, we learned that William Shakespeare was too male and too white. Three weeks ago, we reported on U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg telling a conference that she hopes to see an all-female Supreme Court one day. Here's another gal of the same kidney. Glowering, crop-haired, lesbian British movie director Phyllida Lloyd. Miss Lloyd complained on a British radio show that Shakespeare wrote far more male characters into his plays than female ones. By way of fighting back against the patriarchal bard, Miss Lloyd is currently staging an all-female production of Julius Caesar. I can imagine the script revisions. Et tu, Brute, you bitch. Friends, Romans, country persons, etc., etc. Miss Lloyd is, however, willing to allow men on stage too. She just wants equal numbers of men and women in all theatre companies, put into force of law by the European Union, along with, quote, gender-blind casting. Well, there are some precedents. In European opera, the pants role, where a female singer plays the part of a male, is long established, while in classical Chinese opera, men sang all the roles. No women were allowed at all. And remember that scene in Huckleberry Finn, where the Duke and the King play Romeo and Juliet, respectively. The King protests that, quote, But if Juliet's such a young gal, Duke, my peeled head and my white whiskers is going to look uncommon odd on her, maybe. No, don't you worry, replies the Duke. These country jakes won't ever think of that. I think modern theatre audiences are a tad more sophisticated than the tobacco-chewing denizens of the 1840s American backwoods, though. Juliet with whiskers, or Richard III with two humps on the front instead of one on the back, might be too much for them. December 2013. There are dumb kids and there are smart kids. Who knew? Here's one for the folder labelled 
Researchers discover something we've all known forever. The researchers here were from King's College, London. They did a twin study comparing identical two fraternal twins, covering 11,000 students who took the standard British high school exams. They found that, quote, Differences in children's exam results at secondary school owed more to genetics than to teachers, schools, or the family environment, end quote. Well, who would have thunk it? Just about anybody, that's who. Remember when you first went to school at age five and quickly noticed that some kids were real dumb and others were real smart? And ten years later, the dumb kids were still dumb and the smart kids were still smart? And how there were dumb rich kids and smart poor ones? Well, the eggheads at King's College have just figured out what you figured out back in the day. Well done, guys. In completely unrelated news, the Detroit News reports that, quote, students in Detroit public schools scored the lowest in the nation among big city districts in math and tied for lowest in reading, according to national test results released Wednesday, end quote. No comment. Absolutely no comment. At the end of 2015, I unmasked myself as a sci-fi snob. Am I thrilled about the new Star Wars movie? No, not at all. Not the least bit. Not a jot, nor a tittle. Nor a micro-jot, nor a nano-tittle. I did my adolescent reading in the golden age of science fiction, the 1950s and early 1960s. By the time I got to college, I had read well-nigh every word that Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, A.E. Van Vogt, Ray Bradbury, Cyril Cornbluth, Frederick Pohl, Henry Kuttner, Theodore Sturgeon, Brian Aldiss, John Wyndham and Eric Frank Russell ever wrote. Mostly in the original magazine format. I'm a science fiction snob. I saw the first Star Wars movie when it came out, with the young son of a friend. I had to struggle to mask my contempt. It was what we sci-fi buffs called space opera. By analogy with horse opera, those cheesy western B-movies you got as a second feature in those days. Star Wars wasn't, and I'm guessing it still isn't, just space opera. It was low-grade space opera. Patui. I spit. End of 2016. Just a little memorandum on the hazards of shopping. In the Sar-e-Pul province of Afghanistan on Monday, a woman was decapitated for the offence of going out shopping without her husband. 
Speaking as an old married guy, whose wife must have spent an aggregate several hundred hours out shopping with her husband, I must say, I think the law enforcement authorities of Sar e Pul have their values all wrong. There have been times when I would willingly have submitted myself to decapitation as an alternative to being dragged around J.C. Penney's hunting down bargains in ladies' designer shoes. We must always defer to cultural relativism, though. I'm sure the Afghans know their own culture best. Here's a phrase that caught my approving eye at the end of 2017. Strategic deportation. Say not the struggle naught availeth. It sometimes seems as though we dissident right types are just talking exclusively to ourselves all the time. Then, once in a while, a little bit of our terminology slips out into the public realm and soon is being heard, used by Bigfoot newspaper pundits and TV talking heads. This is happening right now with the expression chain migration. We need to make it happen more. Here's a phrase I would love to see in general circulation. Strategic deportation. If we could just get people talking and thinking about it, that would be a boost for immigration sanity, I think. The way to get it out there is just to do it. Send the ICE officers round to collar some high-profile illegal alien and hustle him off to the airport before he can get lawyered up. You listening there, General? The prime candidate for strategic deportee would, of course, be celebrity illegal alien and former Washington Post reporter Jose Antonio Vargas, who's just copped a book deal with HarperCollins to write his memoirs. Close runner-up would be another Vargas, first name Cesar the first illegal alien permitted to practice law in New York State. This Vargas, who is a Mexican, is no relation to the other Vargas, a Filipino. They'd make a nice set, though, if deported simultaneously. Strategic deportation. Let's push for it. In the last days of 2018, I was wondering, are there any transgender opera singers? And if not, why not? We are definitely living in a transgender moment. Western society is being reconfigured, turned upside down, to accommodate the tiny number of people who are confused about their sex. Every day brings new headlines. Sample from today. Headline. All women's college to begin accepting transgender students. This is Stevens College, a private all women's college in Missouri.
If you're a guy and you'd like to go to Stevens, no problem. Just identify as a female and you're in. Okay, here's my question. I'm an opera fan. Most opera singers fall into one of six categories based on the range and quality of the voice. From highest to lowest, men are tenor, baritone or bass. Women are soprano, mezzo or contralto. Range-wise, there's a lot of overlap, especially among the ladies. If you play me a snippet of a female voice in the lower range and ask me if this gal bills as a mezzo or a contralto, I wouldn't be right more than 70% of the time. Sex-wise, on the other hand, there is no overlap. Range aside, the timbre of a male voice is just different from a female's. A male, any range, could sing a couple of bars, and a female could sing the same notes, and you'd have no trouble saying which was which. Even castrati. There's a sound clip of one at the Wikipedia entry for castrato. Even castrati didn't really sound like females, if that clip is representative. So, my question is, are there any transgender opera singers? If not, are we going to get some? If we get some, how will they persuade us that they are one sex when their voice obviously proclaims them to be the other? At the end of 2019, I know they hate Crime atrocity. In the town of Ames, Iowa, a chap named Adolfo Martinez, aged 30, who doesn't like homosexuals, stole the rainbow banner from a local church and burned it outside a homosexual bar a few blocks away. Martinez isn't somebody you'd want as a neighbour. He comes across as slightly crazy, and he has a rap sheet of minor offences. December 18th, he was sentenced to 16 years imprisonment. That's for taking and burning a homosexual banner. It was a hate crime, the county attorney told us. Mr. Martinez didn't just take the thing and burn it, he did so while thinking bad thoughts. Thoughts, that is, that go against the ruling class ideology. You can file this story along with the sentencing of James Fields, the young man charged with driving into a crowd of anarchist protesters in Charlottesville two years ago and causing the death of a protester. Fields got life plus 419 years on state charges. On top of a sentence of life imprisonment he'd already received on federal hate crime charges. 
he had had bad thoughts too, you see. I'd be astonished if anyone were to get a sentence like that for killing Tessa Majors. Heck, I'd be astonished if anyone got 16 years. I'll say this for our ruling class. They defend their ideology vigorously and ruthlessly, without apology or mercy. If you cleave to an ideology, however anti-human and irrational, that's the way to cleave. This story caught my attention at the end of 2020. An exceptionally nifty example of nature imitating art. We've all had that conversation, sitting around after a few beers, about the worst job I ever had. Well, a video going round this week surely trumps everything you've ever heard in that line. The video shows a vet and his assistant who were called to an animal park in Thailand to administer an enema to one of the elephants, who was constipated. The enema was successful. Too successful. The vet got showered with the contents of the elephant's colon. I laughed at the video along with everyone else. There is, however, an element here of nature imitating art. The art in this case is the comedian's art. There is an old joke about a man who gets a job with the circus. They assign him to, yes, administer enemas to the circus elephants. Like the vet in the video, he gets showered with elephant poop day after day. The guy's wife, after putting up with the smell for a while, at last says, George, for heaven's sake, get another job. To which George replies, What, and quit show business? At the end of 2021, I uncovered some people messing around with Jules Verne. I have mentioned before my grandfather's 1922 World Atlas, still in my possession, although very battered after 99 years of wear and travel. If I open it to pages 4 and 5, I see a double-page spread showing the whole world on Mulvides' equal area projection. Hand-drawn across that picture in blue ballpoint pen is a line going from London down through Europe and the Red Sea, across the Arabian Sea and India, down to the equator, up to Hong Kong and Japan, across the Pacific to San Francisco, then across the USA and the Atlantic, back to London. Whose path is that line marking? 
Why, it's the itinerary of Phileas Fogg, hero of Jules Verne's 1872 novel Around the World in Eighty Days. Who so disfigured Grandad Derbyshire's atlas? I did, aged ten or eleven. Around the World in Eighty Days was one of my favourite books. So imagine the depths of my disgust when I read this story at DailyMail.com about a new, woke BBC TV adaptation of the book. Phileas Fogg's French valet, Passepartout, is played by a black actor. And no, he's not in whiteface, although he is at least French. Detective Fix from Scotland Yard is transformed into a, quote, aspiring female journalist and full-time feminist, end quote. Played by a butch-looking actress, also French. I haven't watched this filthy travesty, and I shall do my best to avoid it. But I assume that the Indian widow Auda, whom Fogg rescues from being incinerated on her husband's funeral pyre, and whom he subsequently marries, I'll assume that she is played by an Australian Aborigine actress, or possibly an Eskimo. Perhaps even an actor. This is 2021, after all. You can never be multicultural enough. What was on my mind this time last year, the end of 2022? Some unfathomable mysteries concerning Derbyshire. There's a Midwestern trucking firm named Sutton Transport, and they sponsor a website named Freight Waves, which covers all kinds of supply chain issues and stories. Wednesday this week, they ran a story on the mystery of the Derbyshire. A Radio Derb listener sent me a link. Thank you, sir. You may think that the mystery of the Derbyshire is how can it be that a guy as smart, accomplished, well-read, well-traveled and good-looking as John Derbyshire isn't rich? That is indeed a mystery, one that I have spent considerable time pondering, but it's not the one that the Freight Waves website is reporting on. Their Wednesday report concerns a merchant ship, the MV Derbyshire, which disappeared in the South China Sea in September 1980, on her way from Canada to Japan with a cargo of iron ore. Nearly 160,000 tons of the stuff. 44 people disappeared with the ship. 42 crew members and two of their wives. The mystery is, why was the Derbyshire lost when she was A, only four years old, 
B. Manned by an experienced master and crew. C. Built by a British shipyard. And D. Classed A1 by Lloyd's Register, which is the top classification for merchant ships. The wreckage of the Derbyshire was located in 1994 in water two and a half miles deep. After six years of investigations, and so now we're 20 years after the sinking, the cause was finally established. The Derbyshire had been hit by an exceptionally severe typhoon with waves possibly a hundred feet high. So, since year 2000, there has no longer been any mystery about the sinking of the ship. As to the other mystery, research continues. As always, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Thank you for your emails and your kind donations. And in regard to the last two items there, I am far behind in responding, so please bear with me. Here is Peter Dawson to sing us out. Happy New Year! And never brought a mine. Should old acquaintance be forgot and days all lang syne? For old lang syne, my dear, for old lang syne, we'll take a car. Yet for old Lang Syne, for old Lang Syne, my dear, for old Lang Syne, we'll take a cup of kindness yet for old Lang Trusty friend and gaze a hand of thine, and we'll take a recht good willy wacht for old lang syne. For old lang syne, my dear, for old lang Kindness yet for old Lang Syne. For old Lang Syne, my dear, for old Lang 
Oh, kindness yet for all that's 